This is Jesus's worship list when he walked the earth. I think uh, Dave called it Jesus's playlist, okay? These are the songs that Jesus and prayers that Jesus grew up singing and praying himself, these 150 psalms. Um, But then even beyond that, Jesus, um, after he was raised from the dead, uh, he said that these 150 prayers turned song that were sung corporately by Israel for a thousand years, he said, these are actually all about me. Jesus was kind of audacious like that at times. So these psalms are all about me. And so while Jesus leaned on them to relate with his father himself, himself during his life, he actually ended up personifying them in a very true and beautiful way. More true and beautiful than even the original authors thought these songs were. More true and beautiful than even the people who sang these prayers for a thousand years where Jesus showed up and, and, and embodied them and personified them. And so this beautiful, complex, spiritual poetry becomes even more beautiful, uh, seen as even more beautifully complex and spiritual through the person of Jesus Christ, which means that as we come to these psalms, we have the opportunity to engage Jesus, even though they were written thousand years before he showed up on the scene, some of them a thousand years. And so um, that's the task we're really involved with this morning. And, um, and uh, so I just want to just kick off our time in this psalm with prayer uh, so that we can just invite uh, God to open our, our minds and our hearts to everything that his word is, is, has been trying to accomplish in humanity, might be trying to accomplish today in our midst so that we can best prepare ourselves to hear from Psalm 75. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, uh, sometimes your, your scriptures are hard. Um, sometimes your scriptures are hard to understand, Lord. They're, they're difficult for us to grasp and, and figure out what's going on. God, sometimes even after we, we grasp and we understand what's going on in your scriptures, they're hard to trust. They're hard to trust. Uh, Father, right now we ask that um, you would give us uh, minds to understand we ask that you would give us hearts to trust. Um, God, we, we, we don't ask that, that you would just um, give us blind faith, God. We, we ask for, for something else. We, we ask to, to understand your heart in, in new ways because you have showed up to reveal yourself to us. And so, God, we ask that you would do that through Psalm 75 this morning. So I thank you for my friends who are here to involve themselves in that significant task of consideration. And we just ask, God, that, that you would show up in, in a great way, God, that uh, we, we know that as we worship you, that, that you uh, draw close to us and, and we actually uncover you. And so would, would, your, um, would your word be seen uh, true this morning in that regard? So I uh, thank you and we look forward to learning all about you. Amen. Amen. Well, as Dave indicated, we haven't been selecting the Psalms this summer. Um, we've been doing it by way of the bingo machine. I'm not sure where that ended up. It's somewhere. Um, oh, it's over here. There it is. Okay. We've been doing it by way of the, the bingo machine, which we actually really love because it says something. It says that no matter where we land in the scripture, this is what, it's, what we're hoping we even are teaching by way of a silly little bingo machine, which might seem strange to you. It is a little bit strange. Uh, but we hope that you can conclude, oh, it's good. In fact, that's a tagline we often joke that could be attached to Sedaris. We hope is attached to Sedaris. Sedaris, a little strange, but good. You know, like... If you say that, I mean, that, that, that's a win for us, okay? A little strange, but good. But, and so one of the things that, we're, that this is kind of teaching as well um, is that anywhere we land in the scriptures um, can point us to life in Christ. Anywhere we land in the scriptures can point us to life in Christ, um, including this psalm, Psalm 75. If I were to be reading through the psalms and choosing a psalm to preach on, I would not read through Psalm 75 and naturally say, oh, I want to preach this one, okay? Well, this sounds like a, a one that I really want to dive into. Um, and so the bingo machine brings us into Psalms that we wouldn't necessarily choose to teach on ourselves. It brings us to Psalms that we wouldn't necessarily choose because we think they're, think they're the Psalms that contain things that you'd like to hear, but they bring us to the full counsel of the Psalms because uh, the Psalms speak about the whole gamut of who God is um, and what he's up to in the world. And as we come to Psalm 75, um, it doesn't need much introduction to get you hooked because in my Bible, maybe it's similar in yours, it has the attractive title, God Judges the Wicked. 
Okay, in mine it's in all caps. I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know what's going on here. All caps. God judges the wicked. It grabs your attention. Now, this makes you think of Jesus, right? No. Probably not. Probably doesn't make you think of Jesus at all. And so what's going on here? Um, and so we actually need to figure out what's going on in this psalm. Um, the author actually didn't entitle his work, God Judges the Wicked. Any kind of bold paragraph headings that you see in the Bible was put in there after the fact by the, the modern translations. And so we actually get to un- roll up our sleeves and unpack the psalm and see if that's a good title or not. Um, and so, uh, so that's something to keep in mind if you're a new student to the scriptures. These bold paragraph headings, the original writers didn't put those in. That, those are put there by the translators to help you kind of navigate it into sections. Uh, the original writers also didn't put spaces between their words. We put those in there too, okay? So, so there's a little bit of work that's done so that the modern mind can understand what's going on. Um, but let's just jump into Psalm 75. We're going to read through it once in its entirety to, to see if we can begin to grasp what it's all about. It starts like this, actually. So this is in the original writing. It says, For the choir director, do not destroy, do not destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks to you, for your name is near. People tell about your wondrous works. When I choose a time, this is God speaking, when I choose a time, I will judge fairly. When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn against heaven or speak arrogantly. Exaltation, now this is Asaph talking again. Exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert, for God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. As for me, I will tell about him forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. And then it switches back to God speaking again. I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. An intense psalm, an intense imagery, a confusing psalm with confusing imagery. In fact, if you're not confused on some level here, perhaps me and you should be switching spaces and you should be up here preaching this psalm. This is a complex piece of work that we've come into today. There's all sorts of imagery, loaded topics. There's all sorts of, there's a few metaphors, some of which are left incomplete and hanging, it feels. This is an interesting song. Um, A very uh, fascinating thing to try to roll up our sleeves and understand. This is much, much different than the songs that we've been unpacking the past couple weeks, where we have a clear occasion that the psalmist is writing to, like, like last week when, when David was really proclaiming a hard time that he was into God and he was learning to trust God in the midst of that. This is a very, very, very different feel. You probably feel that difference. We don't really know what we can attach this to or where it's coming from or where it's going. But that's not to say that we don't have any clues as to where to begin, okay? Um, Look at how it starts here. These intro pieces for the choir director. Do not destroy. Do not destroy is is another song, actually, in Israel's history. It's way back, it's captured in in Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is when uh, the spies go into the land of, of Canaan after coming out of Egypt and going through 40 years in the wilderness, and they spy out the land, and, and, and they come back, and 10 of them say, no, we can't go there. God can't bring us through all of that, and it's actually the peak in the Torah of when God is most upset with his people. He says to Moses, Let, I'm going to start over with you and destroy, and Moses prays this incredible prayer, do not destroy. It's a beautiful prayer, um, and God relents, and he holds back. This is the tune that Asaph says, I want this song sung to. I want this event in mind, that God's mercy is ready for his people. I want to use that same tune. Um, And then it says it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph, who is this guy? Who's this Asaph guy? Um, Well, in in short, Asaph was Israel's chief worship leader in the time of Israel. Asaph is kind of 
the Ty or Jordan of Sedaris Church, okay? Like, like Asaph was the one responsible for leading people in the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem before the temple was built. I'm going to pull from First Chronicles here. So we're going to read that together so you can have a little bit of context as to how he was serving um, the Israelite community. So that's in First Chronicles 15. First Chronicles 15, there it is. So this is when the ark comes into Jerusalem uh, in, in the reign of David. David, the elders of Israel, and the commanders of thousands went with rejoicing to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom. Um, because the ark helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord with God's help, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Now David was dressed in a robe of fine linen, and as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, as well as the singers and the Chenaniah, the music leaders of the, and, and Chenaniah, that, that, that's a guy, the music leader of the singers. David also wore a, a linen ephod, so he's got a robe on, he's got a linen ephod on. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts, the sound of the ram's horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and the playing of harps and lairs. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael looked down from, from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing, and she despised him in her heart. This was uh, David's wife, actually. Um, they brought the Ark of, the, of God and, and placed it inside the tent, David had pitched for it, so he brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem. Then they offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in God's presence. Now, when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed to each and every Israelite, both men and women, a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake. This is a big citywide party that's going on here. Now, now David appointed some of the Levites to be ministers before the ark of the Lord, to celebrate the Lord God of Israel and to give thanks and praise to him. Asaph was the chief, and Zechariah was second to him. Jeel, Shemariah, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaniah, Obed-Edom, and and Jeel played the harps and lairs. While Asaph sounded the cymbals, maybe Ty or Jordan should be up here, cymbals, you know, and, and the priests and, and Benaniah and, and Jahaziel blew the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And we'll come back and finish it here in a sec. But, but so, so Asaph is this chief minister in the tabernacle of Jerusalem. Before the temple's built, he sang instruments, he sang, uh, or he played instruments, he sang, but he is specifically tasked with kind of being chief over the whole worship operation that Israel is involved with. Now that the Ark of the Covenant has come into Jerusalem, now that there's a place to worship God in Jerusalem. And Asa, so he's a priest, he's of the Levites, but he's not a priest that's focused on offering sacrifices. He's a priest that's focused on offering a sacrifice of praise to God. Not the, the sacrifice of animals, but of praise to God. Verse four says to celebrate Yahweh to give thanks and to praise him. And then David actually goes into a whole job description for the rest of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16. We've moved into 16. And he goes into this whole job description. That if, if you're like, involved in leading God's people in worship, I'm looking to you musicians out there, this is a chapter of the Bible that, that you should spend some time in because it, it beautifully just counts and helps you orient like, what you're actually doing up here on the stage as, as you're leading God's people and worship, but this is the beginning of the job description. On that day, David, David decreed for the first time that thanks be given to the Lord by Asaph and his relatives. Give thanks to the Lord, David says. Call on his name. Proclaim his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell about his wondrous works. And this is synonymous with the first verse of our psalm today. The first verse, we give thanks to you, God. We give thanks to you. For your name is near. People tell about your wondrous works. Asaph is saying, I'm doing my job. I'm doing my job. This psalm, this, jo- this psalm is my job as worship leader of Israel. This is my job. This is what I'm all about. These are very similar. His job description and verse one. Even though on the surface, this sounds nothing like what we might think celebration or giving thanks or telling of God's marvelous works must look like. Asaph says, this is what I'm up to. This is what I'm involved in. Let me tell you a little bit about Asaph. Um, He led this corporate praise in Israel, uh, but he was actually also unique. That's what he did. 
He had very unique gifting as a worship leader, you could say, in Israel. And we actually picked this up from um, 300 years later uh, in Second Chronicles. Uh, Second Chronicles is this great book about, it goes from king to king to king to king in, in Judah. And the whole big idea of Second Chronicles is how um, every king, no matter how great they are, no matter how hard they try, they still fall incredibly short of serving God faithfully in crushingly devastating ways. This is the book of <laughs> Second Chronicles. And, and it's meant to really like give you a desire for this good and true king that can show up and lead God's people in a mighty way that's actually good and points them towards life where they can find it. And anyway, so at some point in, in this time, Israel stopped worshiping God. There's no longer a praise leader. There's no longer an instrument. Uh, there's no longer any musicians that are leading God. They have a temple now. And King Hezekiah is setting it all back up again. And there's this really interesting verse here as they're setting up. He gets everybody in their positions to play their instruments. And in Second Chronicles chapter 29, there's this verse which seems like a throwaway verse, but it's not. Then King Hezekiah and the officials told the Levites to sing praise to the Lord in the words of David and of the seer Asaph. So they sang praises with rejoicing. They knelt low and worshipped. For the first time in in decades, they worshipped. But Asaph here is called a seer. A seer. Seer is another word for prophet in the Old Testament. Asaph may be a worship leader in, in terms of the skills that he provides and the function that he's filling, but, but deep down inside, God has gifted him as a prophet, as a prophet. And we have a dozen works in the Psalms saved of Asaph's, a dozen of them. Eleven of them are all together right here. One is Psalm 50, a couple pages to your left. And most all of them drip of prophetic language. Um, what, I, what do I mean by that? Let me give you a, a brief overview of some of them. Um, in, in Psalm 50, that one that's, that's not in this group, he speaks of God as judge with fire before him. In Psalm 76, he, he proclaims that God is a powerful, sometimes angry judge. Psalm 78, he unpacks the times when God had previously judged the Israelites and articulates the lessons we should learn from Israel's past. Psalm 81, he calls people to obedience in order to avoid God's judgment. 82, he pleads for God's judgment to bring justice where it's not. Psalm 83, he prays that God would judge the injustice of his enemies. So we have this worship leader who's a prophet. He's writing prophetic things for us. He's a seer. Um, And and I realize that for many of us, um, that this office of a prophet is jarring for us. It pulls us in, in directions that, we're, that are uncomfortable. I, I get it. It's, it's jarring for all of us. Um, and there's been a multitude of ways that God, as judge, has been misused and, and abused to, to hurt and shame and, and mar the people of God for thousands and thousands of years up to this point. That's true. And, and perhaps uh, we actually don't need to like go to the history books to, to see those instances. We just need to perhaps have a couple people come up and give them the microphone, let them talk about how they've experienced that and their story. That, that's everywhere, and, and, and we get that. And, and I just want to say two things to help you engage this prophetic function that God continually sends his people over and over in the scriptures. God is always sending prophets to his people in the scriptures, I want to say two things to help you um, hold those, to encounter those uh, in the hopes that you might be able to hold some of what Asaph is saying here and, and take it with you. Um, I realize it, we're not meant to hold it forever or for long, but maybe we can just hold it for the next 30 minutes together, okay? <laughs> like I, you don't need to live and breathe and, and, and eat this stuff, okay? But, but God does send us prophets. And so um, just remember first, this is the first thing I'll say, This psalm is oriented in a greater body of work of 150 psalms that say so many things about so many qualities of God. Last week we talked about Psalm 41 where where Dave showed us how God is compelled by compassion to show up at your doorstep when you suffer. That's true. And his presence finds suffering and cozies right up next to it and gives life and love and and meaning and purpose to that suffering if we open ourselves up to him in those times. That's true and that's beautiful. 
Three weeks ago, we talked about how God's majesty is characterized by a grace which forces him to suffer alongside us and even carry our hurt in, in, in our place. This is a magnificent God full of, of mercy and grace. And so this, if this is your first week at Sedaris in the Psalms, this is just what I want to say, especially for you. Um, there is a full breadth of God. God is more vast and complex than we can think and imagine. And, and we have dozens of, 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 of things that... that, that attempt to grasp and go deeper into each one of his qualities that we might discover who he is more. And so this psalm just exists in a body of work that is diving into dozens of them. It's just one of dozens. Um, And then the the second thing is um, God thinks we need prophets. He just keeps appointing them and sending them. And, And so today, you can think of this as Perhaps God has appointed Asaph for you. Perhaps God has, has, has said, you need to hear what Asaph's word is saying to you. And, and admittedly, the, the phrases can turn us off, they're intense. But the, the, these scriptures tell us that they're meant to comfort us, they're meant to instruct us, they're meant to guide us, they're meant to encourage us. But they're also meant to reorient us. They're also meant to rebuff us. They're also meant to rebuke us, which is to say that they're meant to help us consider ways that that we might be living that might be contrary to what God hopes for our life to look like. This is the ministry of the prophetic. They're trying to bring us somewhere we currently aren't. They're trying to offer us perspectives we don't currently have. They're trying to bring us to conclusions that we don't currently hold. They're meant to make us ask questions like this, that we would never ask if we were just left to our own devices. That's what the ministry of the prophetic does. Um, and so that's what people like Asaph is doing, um, Moses is doing, Samuel does it. He's a prophet. Samuel's mom actually gives a psalm that's, that's very similar to Psalm 75. After she dedicates Samuel at the temple, most scholars think that Asaph started there and pulled a lot of stuff and is jumping from, from her prophetic prayer back in, in 1 Samuel 2. Uh, Miriam was a prophetess. She has psalms of, of prophets. Mary's, Jesus' mom was, you read her prayer, it's, it's, a, it's a prayer of a prophet. Jesus himself serves as prophet when he shows up on the scene. So, so a prophet is this, this passionate yet principled, justice-minded reformer who, who challenges this status quo and, and asking questions meant to help people identify uh, if they're aligned with God or not where their loyalties lie. They're, they're, they're truth-tellers who challenge communities as a whole, typically, to evaluate their faithfulness to God, which is to say a prophet's trying to help us see and expose the reality of our own heart that's going on inside of us. It's trying to help us see ourselves. This is what Asaph is trying to do, if, to see if we're aligned with God's heart or not. Okay, and so this is an invitation to, to let... Asaph serve you in this way today, all right? Now, the way that he's going to do it in this psalm is he's going to take three metaphors and he's going to intertwine them together. He's going to intertwine them together um, that speak of God as judge. Um, but you, you, you might have the wrong idea of what God as judge actually means. Uh, what people think Christianity says about judgment and what the scriptures actually say about God's Acting as a judge are actually two very different things, I find, as I have conversations with people. I find that people typically think that Christianity's position of God as judge over humans, it goes something like this. Um, there are humans. Humans can be good or bad. If they're bad, God is going to get angry and, and kill them or, or, or something like this. Uh, so they should be good. And that's way off base. That, that's not actually uh, what the scriptures tell us God acting as judge looks like in this life. And so um, Asaph is going to provide us a more robust consideration of this. Uh, This is what he's going to do with these these metaphors. And metaphors go like this. God as farmer, God as builder, and God as cupbearer. The first two are actually in Hannah's song, which is why most people think Asaph is is jumping from there. Um, But God as farmer, God as builder, God as cupbearer. And so we're just going to go through each of those. They are intertwined, and so they're, they're going to kind of play off of one another in, in unique ways, and uh, we're just going to dive into them. We're going to start with God as farmer, 
because it surfaces a couple of times and it seems to be the, the guiding metaphor that the other two uh, seem to serve a little bit here. So uh, we're going to read it, uh, those parts that talk about God as farmer. It's in verses 4 through 7, and then we'll skip it to the end at 10. So I say to the boastful, this is God speaking, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn against heaven or speak arrogantly. Exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert, for God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. Skip to 10. I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Now, if you missed the farming analogy, that's okay. That's because you don't work on a farm. You work in an office or in a hospital, okay? But a farmer would see this. A farmer would pick this up really easily, really easily. Those of us at Google, Boeing, Microsoft, the hospital, not so much. Not a lot of horns in our workplaces. But Asaph has a picture of a farmer plowing a field with his ox. It's not a particularly flattering image. We're the ox. You're an oxen. It's not, but this is the image that Asaph has, and it's actually most clear in the Hebrew at the end of verse 5. It's difficult to pick it up in the English. Um, at the end of verse 5, it says, um, it says, do not lift up your horn against heaven or speak arrogantly. And that word arrogantly is actually speak with forward neck. Speak with forward neck. It's a very unique phrase. It doesn't happen in the scriptures a lot, but it's literally this image of like an ox lifting up his horn and forward neck and trying to jar the farmer. Okay, so this is this, this bucking of the farmer image is what Asaph is bringing to light in this uh, agrarian culture that's around oxen and oxen that listen and oxen that don't all the time. This is the image that we have here in Psalm 75. Now, your Bible probably says the wicked here, where, where wicked is translated. Um, most translations uh, translate this word wicked, but most of the Hebrew scholars actually opt and prefer a different word here. They, they substitute faithless. Faithless, which actually gets at a little bit more of what's going on here in this metaphor. Um, the faithless, uh, those refusing to trust Yahweh. Uh, the, the farmer, uh, it, it, the, the oxen is, is being led by this, this farmer and it has a choice to, to trust where the farmer is leading it or to be faithless and, and with forward neck lift up its horns against the farmer. That, that's where it's, where, it's, where it's all about or that's what this this metaphor is talking about. Now, before we go any further, we have to remind ourselves who this psalm is for. Who is Asaph writing this for? Is this song for the Philistines? Those are the enemies of the Israelites around the time of Asaph. No, it's not for the Philistines at all. Nope. Who is this song for? It's for the Israelites. Um, It's for the people of God. Perhaps even more pointedly, It's for the people of God who show up to worship. Asaph is a worship leader, and he's saying Israel needs to consider this metaphor. Even the people who are showing up to worship, people who show up to pray, people who show up and claim God as, as their king, as their Lord, who sing to them as their king and their Lord, but perhaps Asaph has seen, I see that they struggle to sing to him and embrace him and trust him as their farmer. So Asaph is issuing a little prophetic challenge for God's people here. When God is plowing a field with you, do you trust where he's leading you with with his word or however you feel like he's guiding you or with forward neck, do you lift up your horn and go after him and say, get off God. I don't want to go that way. I have somewhere else to go. You have somewhere else to go where you're content to leave your horns pointed ahead, bent neck where he's leading you to get the, plow, the, the, the field that he wants to plow plowed. Are you here to praise Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Great, Asaph says. What about the rest of the week? Are you bucking off his leadership? Are you saying, God, get out of here. I have my own things that I want to accomplish. God's people have always been prone to offer him praise with their lips, but walk contrary to his plans. And Asaph, oh, it's so clever what he does. He has this clever turn of phrase word that he uses to tell us exactly what it is that motivates that, why it is we do that. 
And it's right there um, at the beginning of verse 6. The beginning of verse 6. Exaltation. See, we've talked about lifting up your horn to God. Now, Asaph says, exaltation, lifting up, does not come from the east, the west, or the desert, for God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts the other. So what is Asaph doing here? He's observed something that's true of humans then, it's true of humans today, it's true of humans in every age, that we long to be exalted. He's pointing at human pride. We long to be uh, seen as strong and mighty. We long to, to be seen as attractive, charismatic, intelligent, clever, fun, engaging, cool, relevant, great dancer. I long to be seen as a great dancer. I don't know if I'll ever get there. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. I married a great dancer, which really hurts. Uh, I'm always just like, I'll never be that, you know. But anyways. But we might even long to be seen and exalted as extra spiritual and righteous. So even religious people long to be exalted exalted in their religious actions. We long to be exalted in the eyes of others. And because we long for it so much, we look to get things in this world that help us do that. We look from the east to the west. We'll go down to the desert to find something that might make us unique and special so that we might be better than, be seen as better than other people. All of us are so prone to do this. This is the, this is the human tendency. If we're honest with ourselves, we, we can only just say, this seems to come naturally to me. There's no escaping this reality. And so Asaph the prophet, he puts the question to us, how do you do this? Because when we long to be exalted in the eyes of others, we pursue things that are outside of the lane that our good, good farmer, play on words, is trying to guide us in. That's what's going on here. God, I mean, God is calling us as, our, as oxen is a bit of a put down. It is. And what happens, Asaph is saying, is that, that when we see something else that we want, when we see our own exaltation instead of just staying where God has us and going in the, the way that, that he guides us, we buck our horns to him. We forward neck and buck our horns to him and then we bend our neck and, no, and don't buck whatever this other master is. And this actually becomes most clear when we see God use this metaphor again of people in the person of Jesus. Jesus calls us oxen too. And this is in Matthew chapter 11. Um, Jesus puts it like this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So Jesus, this, this image of a yoke, is that which goes on an oxen to guide this oxen where you want it to plow. And so what does this tell us? This tells us a lot of things, actually. First, it tells us that when your neck is forward and your horn is raised to God, you're bending it to something else that's putting a burden on you, a, a big burden. And Jesus says, that ranch hand is actually much, much more cruel than my father is. This burden that we want to put on you, to be sure it's a burden, following Christ is no easy walk in the park, but Jesus says, it's light, relative to this other burden that you're putting on your shoulders to get this exaltation from this other thing. It's light. It's light. These other ones will crush you. They're much crueler ranch hands, whether it be success or power or, or image or experiences. Those, promise, those farmers, they're, they're going to promise you exaltation, but in the end, you're actually just going to be further buried under their load, down, 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 and down. Bend your neck to success, and you'll never feel like you've done, done enough. Lower, lower your horn to image as if that's the ultimate thing to accomplish in life. And you'll always feel ugly. You'll always feel like a fraud. Bend your neck to greed and you're never gonna feel like you have enough. If you lower your horn to experiences, the list just gets longer and longer and longer. You'll never be able to accomplish them all. But Jesus says, come to me. The things you're bending your neck and lowering your horn to while raising your, your horn to those other things, they're crushing you. They're crushing you. Come to me. Learn to bend your neck and lower your horn here. And you'll find that this burden is light. The other thing he says is, 
I am gentle and lowly of spirit. I'm leading you, I'm putting this burden on you, not for my self-ambition. The cross proved that, by the way. Christ's ambition and his thoughts of his own ambition are completely to the side. He does it for the good of his people. God gets his glory in the end, but he says, this is for your good. The burden is light. I'm not taking advantage of you just just to, to feel great myself. I'm doing it, and it's for your good. So God as farmer challenges our allegiances. Who and, and, and what are we really trusting in this world? That's the question. Who and what are you really trusting in this world? What's most important to us and, and how much longer are we gonna let it burden us? That's what Asaph wants us to wrestle with. Now, verse 10, it sounds like an ultimate declaration of, of you better choose the right thing or else, but not so fast, not so fast. Let's look at the other metaphors he uses. The second one, which happens first here, is God is a builder. God is a builder. When I choose a time, I will judge fairly. When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. This is God speaking. When I choose a time, I will judge fairly. When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. Pillars. This is God as a language, or or God as, as a builder. God is a builder. Um, Eugene Peterson, who understood Hebrew, probably in the top 1% of 1% of all people when he died back in 2018. He wrote his own translation of the Bible. He wrote books on the Psalms because he understood Hebrew poetry so well. He translates it really great. He says, when the earth goes topsy-turvy and no one knows which end is up, I, God, nail it down. That's a good builder. I nail it down. So this is a, we have this God judging fairly, God nailing it down as a builder. Morality is in mind here. Uh, Right and wrong seem to be completely confused in the world sometimes, don't they? Perhaps even completely backwards. Perhaps even so backwards that it's leading to intense global confrontations where it feels like this world is going all topsy-turvy. It's going to fall completely over. Asaph says, God will never let that happen. This is prophetic hope. This is prophetic hope. We have prophetic challenge already. This is great prophetic hope. When all feels lost, Asaph says, God steadies the pillars. He's never gonna let things get so far out of, out of whack that the earth topples over into unrelenting and unrecoverable darkness. God holds it all together. You can have hope in that, Asaph says. When you feel like it's all out of control, and you feel like there's no coming back from this. God holds it all together. When the powers that be in society feel like they're taking the morality that, that we've worked so hard to establish in this world and they're just ripping it to shreds and throwing it in the fire, Asaph says, don't worry. God is working to steady this still. And in this way, he's being a judge now. He's like a good house builder. He won't let it topple over. Take heart. God's a good and fair judge. Do not despair, Asaph says. He'll always catch you. He'll always catch us. He sees us. He loves us. And him being a judge means he's powerful enough to act, to catch us, put us upright again. So this is an incredible promise for the heart of faith. But notice the contrast between verses two and three here. Verse two is completely future-oriented. When I choose a time, I will judge fairly. Verse three, completely present-oriented. When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. So which is it? Is God presently responding to human justice or has he just stayed at a time some point in the future to deal with all of it? That's the question, right? Which is it? Well, you could think of it like this. For now, God steadies the pillars and nails it down, like Eugene Peterson tells us. But one day, he will firmly plant the earth in a foundation of concrete. Asaph is bringing the complexity of God's, God as judge to bear in, in our lives. Some now, in the future, he's going to completely judge fairly. It'll be completely established. Now he nails it down and holds up the pillars. See how complex this is? 
So if, if you were to say something along the lines of, I can't wait for God to fix all this injustice and implement his justice in the world, Asaph would say, hold up, hold up, hold up. He is. He is. Don't worry. He is doing that. And, and if you were to say all is lost, there's no way to recover from how far we've fallen, Asaph would say, no, take heart. Take heart. One day God will bring it completely full to fruition and it will be completely set and established one day. He's still holding it all together now, too. So how can this be, though? Is this really true? Is God really working his justice today? Is he? Is he? The realist questions that claim. Don't we? I'm a realist, by the way. (laughs) Is God really working? Is he really, actually, in his justice, holding this earth together? Is he? How can Asaph claim this to be true? One could make the sense that, that injustice abounded even more in his day. Um, the cynic will reject this claim altogether. There's no way that we see God working right now in the world. Look at how awful things are. Now hold on. These metaphors are still building on each other. They're, they're still nuancing one another. God the farmer says that humans have the choice to follow this God or reject him and seek exaltation instead, which will lead to more injustice. That's actually how these are playing together. When we push off God and we give him the horn and the forward neck to get out of the way so we can go pursue our own thing. That actually creates injustice in the world. That's a dynamic that Asaph is trying to put in, in, in front of us here. That's good. Your exaltation is going to create injustice in the world. God the builder says he's working his justice now to steady the, the earth in response to the exaltation that humans are seeking in the world. Okay, It's not going to let it get too far and one day it'll all be taken care of. Now consider this third metaphor, God as cupbearer. God as cupbearer tells us that God is content to let us choose, and that act in and of itself is an act of his justice. Let's read it together. Verse 8, for there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the faithless of the earth will drink Draining it to its dregs. Draining it to its dregs. Asaph cuts off the metaphor there. Uh, We're left to imagine the result ourselves, actually. Um, And we squirm. Squirm. In fact, if if your shoulders are up around your ears right now, that's Asaph's desired result, intention. That's his desired effect. That's what he's going for. Asaph shows us that God does take action against the faithless now. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Now, in order to grasp this metaphor, you have to have the context of the biblical story. Okay? Uh, from the very beginning of the Bible, the biblical story is trying to tell us something. It's trying, to, it's trying to tell us something that's hard for us to hear. It's a prophetic message. It says, hey, humans, we're worse off than we realize. Okay? We're a, a lot more corrupted on individual and, and especially corporate levels than we care to admit. We're, we're, we're a lot worse off than we realize. And, and that set us on a path towards destruction and death. You know, this exaltation leads to injustice, which leads to all sorts of atrocities being committed and, and done. It, the, the biblical story tells us there's more evil in us than we think, and we have less resources to deal with that evil than we assume as well. So the problem's deeper, and um, our solutions are weaker on the other hand, than we typically give them credit for. That's the biblical story, and that puts us on a destructive path that ends ultimately in death. And and the biblical authors, many of whom were prophets like Asaph, all resoundingly tell us a similar message with regards to God's judgment of that condition. God will give us what we want. God will give us what we want. If we want to pursue exaltation in the world through any one of the dozens of avenues we may choose, God will let us go. God will hand you over to any cruel farmer that you want to go plow for. That's the biblical witness. It happens time and time and time again. God will hand you over to that. It's a dynamic throughout the Torah, throughout the Old Testament narrative, and we see the Apostle Paul picking up on the same thing, using the same phrase, handing us over three times in Romans chapter one. It grieves God, but God gives people over to their desires as an act of justice. How? Because humans seeking their own self-exaltation 
can be one of the swiftest paths to their destruction. This is the testimony of the Old Testament, the story of Israel, a people who wrestled with God, who stiffened their neck and gored at God frequently. At one point in time, they they run to Egypt for help because there's an army that's seeking to invade them. And God says, if that's who you want your farmer to be, I'll hand you over to Egypt. And Egypt actually becomes one of the nations that brings Israel into exile. Humans are worse off than we realize, more corrupted than we think. We're on a path towards death marked with self-imposed misery and pain, self-imposed hardship and sufferings. We chase after these cruel farmers because they offer us promises of exaltation, and in the end, it's our undoing. God honors that desire of ours. And all of this is meant to inspire the prayer. God, please don't give me all my desires. Please don't. Please don't. Asaph is saying, can you really trust yourself? Can you really trust all your desires? I hope not. I hope our prayer is God temper our ambitions, temper our pride, temper our desires to be exalted over our neighbors, over our enemies, over our brothers and sisters. Temper us, God. Please don't give us what we want. It will surely be our undoing in this world now. Don't trust yourself. And so here in Psalm 75, um, actually, Asaph is this first biblical writer to unpack this motif of the cup. Uh, you'll see other prophets pick it up. Um, this, this idea of the cup being uh, God's retribution or, or judgment uh, for, for people who want to, to leave God, he hands them over by way of this cup. Um, Ezekiel picks up it, Jeremiah picks up on it. And um, the metaphor drops off abruptly because it's meant to illustrate the point that we're unaware when God has handed us over. That we're, we're getting drunk in our pursuits of self-exaltation and we're completely unaware that this is a form of God's justice in the world. When we say, I don't want God, and so God responds, okay, and so I'll give you over, that, that's not like God provides a huge sign of, I'm giving you over now. It just happens. So the question really becomes, have I drunk this cup? This is the intense question very intense question that Asaph wants all the people of God to wrestle with. The Apostle Paul picks up on it as well. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. God, am I drinking from this cup? So this is all to say, replace the assumption of judgment of humans should be good or God will get angry and harm them with the story of biblical justice, which goes like this. I'm a human and bent on evil. And because of that, I'm prone to reject a good and pure God, and in his justice, he'll let me go do that and pursue that evil, which will be my undoing if I want that. Which in the end, there's no getting around it, will lead to horns being cut off in separation from him when he does come back to establish the earth one day in justice, complete justice. So what's the correct conclusion then if we want life? To plead his grace and mercy to plead his grace and mercy, that, wouldn't, that he wouldn't give us what we want, that he wouldn't give you the cup to drink unaware. But here's the problem, and, and this is the problem that Asaph has soaked in. The narrative of the Old Testament doesn't solve this tension. Humans are, are prone to seek self-exaltation all the time, and so it seems that the only natural conclusion is then that the cup is theirs to drink. God's people seem to be stuck with the cup. That's what, uh, that's what the Old Testament tells us. And Asaph, in, in trust of God, even though this is the fact, even though he himself for sure has sought exaltation in his life, even though he himself for sure has, has bucked God's guidance in his life and his word in his life, he says this in verse nine. He throws himself on the grace and mercy of God and says, as for me, I will tell about him forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, as for me, I'm going to try really hard not to butt God's leadership. He doesn't say, I'm just going to try harder. That way I'll get around God's, God's justice. No. 
He says, I'm going to throw myself on the mercy and grace of God. I'll tell about this hope of God that's present. Jesus, when the cross is before him, when it becomes evident that he's about to be handed over to his betrayer, handed over to the Jewish leaders, handed over to all the municipalities of the Roman machine in, in Jerusalem at that time, handed over to death on a cross, he says, Lord, take this cup from me. Take it. The thought of drinking it himself was so excruciating, he sweat drops of blood. Take this cup from me. But he doesn't with forward neck lift up his horn. With bent neck, horns lowered, he takes it. He drinks it for all who would throw themselves upon the the grace and the mercy of God. Which is to say he experiences God's judgment on the cross for all of our neck raising all of our horn raising throughout life, for you and I, that anybody who trusts in him has done. Jesus drank that cup in our stead so that we who didn't want to drink it would never have to. So that those opened to the reality of God will hand me over to my desires. Please, Lord, don't hand me over to my desires. There's a way now. Jesus made it. He drinks the cup. We can be united to him. And in that way, he can reorient our desires in this world. He can put us on a path where we find contentedness, even blessedness in this road that God has a good, good farmer is trying to plow through us in this world. This is what the life of Jesus is all about. It's fulfilling this psalm and helping us get around the justice of God based on his mercy and grace so that we could avoid it. God knows he's scary. He knows his holiness. He knows his perfection is too much, actually, for us to grasp. He gives us these images, even just these images, which are just a, a small glimpse of how crazy scary he is. He knows these are even too much for us to hold for long periods of time and stomach. But what he does say is, I'm going to take care of the part of of humanity that makes me scary myself. I'm going to drink the cup so that you don't have to, so that we can be together again, so that we can do this created order exactly how I intended for it to work from the very beginning, which is we are going to rule the created order together We are going to make some beautiful fields that are going to lead to all types of human flourishing. That we are going to find that this earth can be completely full and and blessed and and overwhelm and beauty and magnitude and potential and life and just flourish in a way that, that humans have never been able to actualize ourselves. And I can do that because I can take the cup from you. And I can empower you. So alongside me, we can, we can do this together. This has always meant to work. So in an obscure psalm, penned by a prophet with obscure metaphors, meant to be a prophetic challenge for all of us. Um, for those counted among God's people um, and, and those on the outside looking in, I, I just pray it, it helps all of us look in and, and consider our hearts. I, I pray it, it helps us grasp more deeply the work of, of Jesus Christ and I pray it gives you the compassion to, to be able to see those um, who, who might be on the outside and, and completely under the burdens of cruel farmers. Um, that when they're, they're ready and they're, they're tired of it, that we're ready to help them find the good farmer whose burden is light and whose path is life um, so that they can truly participate in this great earth flourishing project that God has set humans on um, to partner with him in. So... Would you pray with me?